Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So double-check your life timer, sharpen your scythe, and join us on our journey through Reaperman and the complete discography. So tonight we're talking about Reaper Man, the, uh, what is it, 11th book? Yes, the 11th, 11th book in the series. Do we count Eric? Yes. 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 The 11th book in the Discworld series, published in 1991. So it starts out with a framing device of the Morris dance, and this is something that I guess is a British thing. Uh, I saw it a few times when I was there, and it was... Oh, well, so this yeah. isn't a Discworld thing. This is an actual fucking thing? This is an yeah. actual it's like thing. A, it's a real, like, folk dance in the UK. Oh, gosh. It's this English folk dance tradition that involves, um, they, they wear these ribbons around their knees and elbows, and, like, they whack each other with sticks and stuff. It's very... God damn it, England. <laughs> Could you be more of a fantasy novel? It's, it's sort of akin to, like, maypole dancing, right? Yeah, Is they're they're dancing a thing in the states. Sometimes it depends on whether you grew up around an awful lot of hippies or not. So mm. yes, it was for me. So we want to do titles. Sure. We thought we would go with a theme this time. So I am Aaron, the death of houseplants. I'm Anna. The death of those blueberries I forgot in the fridge. Whoops. I am Justin. The death of projects you excitedly think of after two drinks. I am Minna. The death of earbuds. But currently only one earbud out of a pair for all of my earbud sets. It's fine. I thought I would go for the hardest hitting one I could. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a big, big mood. Yeah, Yeah, that's a big mood. Plot synopsis. Death has developed a personality, and to the auditors of reality, this is a problem. Forced into retirement, he finds himself, along with his trusty steed Vinky, wandering into a small farming village. There, he is hired as a farmhand by an older lady living alone by the name of Miss Flitworth, and takes on the name Bill Dor. Meanwhile, in Ankh-Morpork, it's the day that Wendell Poons is supposed to die. Because he is a wizard, he knows in advance, and all the other wizards at Unseen University throw him a big going-away party. But the guest of honor never arrives, and when Wendell Poon di- when Wendell Poons dies, his spirit has no one to guide it on to what's next. With nothing better to do, Poons returns to his body, where he finds that after a bit of an adjustment period, it works much better than it did when powered by a living spirit. Death, or rather Bill Dor, has time now. In fact, he has a lifetimer, which is ticking out the last of his days. Blending in with humans is a new adventure, although no one seems to notice he's a seven-foot skeleton. The secret to making friends is apparently appearing humorously bad at games of skill, which Dor eventually figures out how to do. It takes a lot of skill to be that bad. On purpose, at least. Uh, he also gets closer to Miss Flitworth, who is a little lonely on her farm, although she's pretty, pretty sharp lady. Um, but it is taking a while for something new to appear to do Death's job, so things are getting a little weird. 
there's poltergeist activity, which is throwing the university and the patrician's palace into chaos. And Wendell Poons has found his way to a support group where he meets a bunch of undead and honorary undead people. He also meets a medium and her werewolf daughter, uh, who help him figure out that the poltergeist activity is the result of too much life energy with nowhere to go. Also, snow globes keep popping up and everyone wants one and we don't really know what's going on with that. Um, harvest is fast approaching in the farmlands and individual deaths for different species are starting to manifest. Bill Dorr finds his old role as being made redundant in a new way. The village smith has just invented something called the Combination Harvester, which will quickly replace scythes. Bill Dorr pits himself against the Combination Harvester and very nearly beats it, which doesn't really bode well for when he decides to try to fight the new death for his life and that of a little girl from the village. In Ankh-Morpork, the wizards are fighting off shopping trolleys, which are overrunning the city, and they're all streaming somewhere outside the walls. Uh, also, the wizards have realized that the snow globes were just eggs, and the shopping trolleys hatched out of them. Um, so the shopping trolleys become worker bees in a shopping mall life form, which grows outside of Ankh-Morpork, and I really don't know how to make it any more clear than that. It is a amazing, ridiculous thing that has happened. Uh, but yes, it is feeding off the excess life energy that is everywhere. Um, the wizards, together with Wendell Poons and his posse of undead friends, decide to fight a shopping mall. Yeah, that is the big battle for them at the end. It's ridiculous and terrifying. Um, Bill Dorr is not content with fighting the machine revolution, so now he's fighting a new kind of death, one that wears a crown, which pisses him off a lot. Um, but he can't do it without help. Um... He tried to make a side that would help him in death, that would be destroyed, and then he could fight death while dead, but that didn't work out, so he needs a little bit of life so he can grab a real side. Um, and the way he gets that is that Miss Flitworth gives him some of hers. Uh, he manages to, to defeat death, and he returns to his old position as death, uh, but he begs one last favor of Azrael, the death of the universe. Just a little bit of time. Um... He returns to Miss Flitworth, and he gives her one last lovely evening, and they dance at the Harvest Dance, and then it's her time to go, and he reunites her with her long-dead fiancé. And then, Wendell Poons finally faces his long-delayed death. Trying to summarize a Discworld book is a nightmare, because every little thing is plot-critical, and there's no way for me to build it up in a logical way, even though it was perfectly logical when it happened. At least there's only two plots in this one. That's fair. There's only two plots. And this is a book you should read because it's a good book and it's a fun book. And uh, yeah, so, so, you know, we'll we'll summarize books more if there are lower on the recommendation scale. This one you should read. And this this is this is a book club podcast, but it's less one of the ones where we're going to take it you through it blow by blow. So you don't have to read hmm. the book yourself. So, Justin, you want to talk about your boy? Big death energy! Yeah, no, it's... Um, yeah, so, um, I feel like this is, like, coming at y'all from July 2020. A book being about the furloughing of death is, um, <laughs> too real for me. Um, yeah, no, Deathless is his job, and I think this is, this is, this is death in a, he's... I wouldn't say that he's the main character of the book, or at least he's not where most of the action is centered through, I'd say, maybe the first half of it. 
Yeah, it's 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 my boy Death. He's back. Instead of like we're in more, we get him trying to discover and enjoy life for the fullest. Instead, it is Death as forced retirement, trying to find some sort of identity. And also, he's having to face his own mortality. He is, and honestly, that, that it's it's a. It's it's a it's a very different facet of death than we got in Mort, um, and it's a little surprising because we're having to like jump back like seven books for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I think yes and no because we last saw death in like a really big capacity in Mort, but he's been appearing in the sidelines in every book since then, mm-hmm. and. So I think we've gotten some character development as he's interacted with the events in all of the intermediary books. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it's all part of a bit of a progression. Yeah, and we get a lot more shape around the edges. Like death death is not necessarily the like fix like he's not in the spotlight for a lot of the book, but I feel like we get a lot of um more shape around him even even like when they when the wizards try the rite of ashkent or however it's pronounced um ashkenti i think yeah the, there's that one quote where you know they, they say i've only i've always felt he only stays in the octogram for the look of the thing uh when they've summoned him previously and you know so they it really sort of shapes the character from from afar uh, but then also like the 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 part that at the near the end where he really sort of embraces the fact that he has pers- a personality as death, not just as Bill Dor, um, where he gets just so cheesed off by the uh, by New Death's dramatics. Oh yeah, you know he's like, well, why 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 do you know that he's going to turn up at midnight? And he's like, <laughs> oh. oh. Yeah, the, the the kind of death who poses against the skyline and gets lit up by lightning flashes doesn't turn up at five and twenty past eleven if he can possibly turn up at midnight, you know. And, and the crown thing and yeah, dr- the, the oh drama thing. It was just yeah, the, yeah. the repeated drama <laughs> of death, like death just being drama <laughs> is honestly such a mood. So should we describe that other death more? Or have we got? Yeah, because like what happens? What happens when Death gets furloughed? Right, is that he is um, the the Death powers. um, Everything everybody still expects Death, you know, small D Death. So we get the this dive back into the belief meditation stuff that Terry has been sort of slowly accreting around his works, because everybody believes that Death is coming for them, even if they're a mayfly or a turtle. Or whatever. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other deaths, right? And so I guess this is the the, the death that we see on screen is the death of deaths. Huh. That's that's actually act. That's a good point there. Because that the the death with the crown only comes for death, as far as I know. Yeah. Well, he's going to be the first, the first right. one that death with the crown comes for. This book also introduces the auditors who are the replacement for the creatures from the dungeon dimensions as the sort of otherworldly antagonists. Mm-hmm. And who are they? Oh, 
I, I'd say so. Like that they That's they aren't they a direct like parallel. Them. I think they're quite interesting, actually. Yeah, they come back repeatedly in really interesting ways, and it's a very interesting alternative to the traditional eldritch horrors because they're they're eldritch bureaucrats. And they sort of have this grudge against the disc world because it's it's untidy. Mm-hmm. I'm honestly more horrified by them than I've been by most of the dungeon dimension interactions. Yeah, they're they're very they're creepy. Yeah. Well, and they're just so they just don't they don't have any stake in it. They're not even hungry. They just want to keep order by whatever means possible and there's no reasoning with them. Mm-hmm. And like specifically like not allowed to have personality. I don't know, it just it's They treat death like a like in Star Wars a droid that's gone too long without a memory wipe, right? Yeah. 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 That's that's a really good analogy. I only sort of know what I'm talking about. Hi, welcome to our After Hours podcast where we talk about droid rights. God. (laughs) I almost had my title in this be the death of perfectly normal conversations that aren't about Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. Oh, that's good. So Wendell was sort of a side character in uh, Moving Pictures. He was yes. awful in moving pictures, but I really liked him in this one. Mm-hmm. And he realized in this one that he had been awful previously. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he was just sort of like a gross, creepy old man in moving pictures. So Wendell Poons is about 113 years old. I think 130. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he's about 130 years old and he is supposed to die and then he doesn't die and his spirit has nowhere to go. So it just goes back into Wendell Poons and then... Uh, he is an extremely uh, strong zombie who has figured out how to Jaeger his body very well. Uh, he can think clearly now because he's not alive uh, to get in his own way. <laughs> God, what a mood. <laughs> <laughs> and he is just trying to solve whatever this problem is that means that he's not dead and also lots of weird things are happening in the city. Uh, and I... I, I love the moment where he bursts in on the rest of the wizards and announces, I believe I can metabolize alcohol. <laughs> and this boy, he just, he he's so willing to let them try everything they can to make him actually be dead. He just, he wants it, to, he wants to do the right thing in terms of vis-a-vis being dead. He just can't be dead. Eventually, this leads to him being buried undead and coming back out of the coffin. Buried at uh, at a crossroads, right? Yeah, yeah, buried at crossroads. After the wizards uh, tear up the street. Yeah, a major intersection. It's great. It's God, wizards are a nightmare. Um. Anyway, do we want to talk about the rest of the undead that he meets after he sees a notice on the inside of his coffin. So this is the first appearance of somebody who we will make you cry a little bit uh, a couple years down the road uh, in the form of Reg Shu. Uh, who I is, literally have in my book Reg Shu. Yeah, in my notes. <laughs> a, who is an undead act, uh, undead rights activist and zombie? He's a good boy. And we can't talk about why because Aaron will cry. Uh, <laughs> also because spoilers. Yeah. Yes. Also because major spoilers. Yeah, major spoilers. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, the, uh, among, uh, so let's see who else is in this support group. There's, um, Mr. Exolite, who is a Banshee who has lost his voice, I think. I think it's a Banshee with a speech impediment, so he writes banshee little notes sp- instead that's right. like, ooh, you, you. Yes. There is the reverse werewolf. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's the reverse werewolf who's an honorary undead because he's a werewolf. There's the Banshee, there's Ragshu, there's a vampire, Arthur, Arthur something or other. Who's a greengrocer who inherited... Yeah, he, he inherited a, uh, a count title and went off to go claim it and then became a vampire and h- hates everything about it. Uh, his wife's really into it, though. Uh, she keeps doing a fake vampire accent and insists on Dream, being yes. called by, like, count whatever names. So she's also there. It's an Uberfold accent, isn't it? Yeah, it this was really Uberfold. reminiscent. Right. She just puts a bunch of V's into everything. That's Doreen. Um, and I then love there's the also, oh, There's also there's Brother Schleppel, who is the... Yeah, um, the bogeyman with the German name. I couldn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like Schleppel. Schleppel yeah. is sweetheart. He's an agoraphobic bogeyman, which means he just doesn't come out from under things, and he spends a lot of it hiding behind a door. Or carrying a door around, yeah. Yes, carrying a door around so he can be out and about. That is that is that is Poons' wonderful innovation to help him get out. <laughs> A security door. He he and the Banshee are both extremely cute. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple more that are named but not described. Those are the major players, though. Mm-hmm. And then there's the wizards again, who are actually None kind of, of really fun. New, except maybe the lecture on recent runes. Yeah, none of them are new, but I feel like they are new in terms of how they're portrayed on the page. Mm. Oh, yeah. We're seeing the wizards as the sort of, like, zany slapstick sort of things, the way that we did in moving pictures, which is extremely different from the Rincewind books. This is the correct way to portray the wizards because oh, it's absolutely. actually yes. fun and delightful. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, yes, we, we get the return of, I, I think, even an even more bravado-ish and dumbass version of Rincully. Mm-hmm. Which, yep. honestly, bless this man. Himbo. He's a himbo. He's not nice enough. No, he, You're right, he's I, not as, nice enough. None as, of the wizards are my, nice enough. As a doctoral student in himbo studies... <laughs> um, I will. It's that that we, I will make my official ruling that Ridicully is not nice enough to be a himbo. He is. He is a fitness nut, though. Uh, he jogs every morning and tries to convince other people to join him, which is just very, very good. Oh my god, he's the CrossFit guy. It's very much a certain kind of upper crust British gentleman. Oh yeah. We're also seeing. The bursar and his steady descent slow. into yeah. <laughs> yes, I love the bursar because he's relatable. I love the bursar the same way I love C three PO. There's also yeah. another anxious boy in here, and I don't remember which one it is. Maybe the lecture in recent runes. Head wrangler. Yes, head wrangler. That's what it is. Who is a very specific level of academic. And the dean who just devolves into a uh, plain soldier 
playing Rambo, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could do an office sitcom about these these. Oh, boys. absolutely. Uh, and, and with a, a brief nod to Modo, who is not a wizard, but the the uh, unseen university gardener who suffers. <laughs> Bless him. He cares a lot about compost. He knows a lot about compost. Love him. He's valid. We've also got Mrs. Cake. Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Cake. Who... I feel like I this feel like w- from the fact that you have this all cap that you have Mrs. Cake all capitalized in the doc that she returns. She does, and is also just sort of mentioned a lot in sort of a almost like a Discworld meme kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Listen, priests fear her. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Cake is a medium uh, with a daughter who is a werewolf. Um, so that's, I mean, you say medium, but more of a small, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. That one. <laughs> uh, but she also has like 10 seconds, like precognition, which is quite fascinating sometimes. And also she just, she will join any church that will take her, uh, and they have to take her. And by the time that they have realized that she is going to be too much trouble and uh, challenge them too much on their dogma, she has already taken over the Ultra Guild and every other possible guild. I love her. She's so good. So when she leaves, the whole church collapses behind her, basically. There's a brief scene in, like, the Temple of Offler, like, the or not a lost temple, like, across the, the disc. <laughs> where somebody is uh, breaking into a temple and the priests are like, oh no, is it Mrs. Cake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's Miss th- Flitworth, who death stays Yeah, with. She is a sweetheart and I love her. She's so good. She's a lonely woman. Her late dad was a smuggler. Her very late fiancé was also a smuggler who just disappeared one winter in the mountains. She lives alone. She only ever hires one farmhand and then whoever she needs otherwise to get in the harvest. And she's just... I I just... There's something very, like, sharp about her, and I know I've used that word for her before, but I just really like her a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She sort of reminds me of Granny Weatherwax in some ways. Yeah! But, like, softened and a little bit more human. Mm-hmm. But there's the thing that she shares with which is where she's all about looking at the world as it is rather than what she wants it to be or what it Exactly. I mean, she definitely misses some things, like it takes her a while to figure out that death is death, but she's like a little clearer eyed than most people, I think. Yeah. Fan theory, Miss Flitworth could be a witch with the right training. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. So we had a couple of things that were maybe confusing to people. Um, yes. Aaron, you wanted to talk about the closing line, right? Yeah, although we can push that to the end. I just thought that that was very, you know, the, the Azrael quote. Justin, we, we talked this up, but did it hit, like, the highs that we suggested it was going to? Um, yeah, it was a real, I, I liked it. It was a delightful book. I, I think there was, like, less death than I was expecting. Mm. Um but like the parts that hit, especially in the back half, um, 
uh, are they 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 work really well. This is a very it's it's a very like I think I'm somebody who like probably drifts a little bit more towards the type of plot lines that death are than the wacky shenanigans because it's like oh I actually like the wizard stuff in this one, but uh, the the death stuff it just hits so well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like the 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 last scene with Miss Flitworth and Death, it, it I cried during it. It was really uh Yeah. I got like genuinely emotional, like not quite teary because I don't really get teary at books, but like feeling like I could get teary, like at multiple mm-hmm. points throughout the book. Like it started like less than halfway through the book with death. There's there's also the point where um there's the fire in the inn and death goes on his whole thing of like he's not helping to put out the fire or save anybody inside and he goes on to his whole thing of like to save but one soul would rip apart the shreds of the universe um the working and on mortal rules not death rules and flitwick miss flitwick is just like you know fuck that you know if you don't go there in there and help with this, then you are dead to me, Pildor. <laughs> and he he helps and saves that child. And then it's it was a real like turning point moment for him that was just so so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, the first moment that I got a little bit teary about death was the bit with the chicken. Mm. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Where he like. I don't know. I think he kind of really saw, like, from a mortal's perspective, what what death is. And, like, for Miss Flitworth, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, like, killing the chicken is just a part of the cycle of life for me. But for him, it was, like, the first time that he's having to confront mortality, really. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the first time that he killed. Yeah, mm-hmm. the first time he has to be responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Rather yeah. than just cleaning up the mess, pretty much. And he still manages to do it, you know, very... Very gently. Very kindly. Uh, and meanwhile, I had forgotten entirely about the bit with the shopping mall. Yeah, somehow. Me too. I don't know how. But that was fantastic to read. It was just so fun as like coming through it for the first time, like you're like, why the fuck snow globes? This is just another weird quirky thing that's happening. And then it's like shopping trolleys? What? And then they're starting to build up the reveal of like, oh yeah, it's some kind of organism and it will become something. I'm like, there's literally a footnote somewhere in there where I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be suburbia or a shopping mall. (laughs) Unraveling that mystery was fun. You know what that whole section felt like to me, Minna? It felt like a Doctor Who plot. Mm. It really, yeah. There's a lot of this that feels like Doctor Who to me because I was literally in my head just making the comparison of like the way that death has to experience people is a little bit like how the doctor has to experience people where like you see the value and of like these very short lives and you're able to like understand them on that level but you also are on like such a higher like viewpoint that it would be easy to forget mm-hmm. if you let it. Yeah. But the the whole the whole thing of like a shopping mall coming alive, oh, yeah. and yeah. that was just so who. the horror in the mundane, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and being like an opportunistic parasite, I guess. Yeah, yeah. where yeah. it's like 
a monster that's mixed with an idea. Yeah. Yeah, I I had completely forgotten that entire plot line. And the, uh, you know, the first time I see the snow globes and I'm reading it this time, I was like, oh, that means something. That means something. That means something. And the trolleys, I was like, I can't remember that. And then it all came together and I was like, I don't remember that at all, but this is great. On the other hand, I distinctly remembered the the Bill Door and uh, Miss Flitworth sort of stuff. Yeah. And I think that might be why we advertise it as having more death than it did just mm-hmm. then. That was what both of us remembered. Uh, yeah, just because we forgot about the other plot. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's not that the other plot isn't good, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just that the, the really memorable piece is the Bill Door. The Bill Door stuff is very good. Yeah. That's sort of a Kaiser Soze name, but... And it's... Uh, I felt like Bill Door coming up with the Bill Door name. Mm-hmm. It felt like me coming up with literally any RPG character <laughs> name as a GM, where it's just like looks around in panic. Bill is a regular name. Maybe you're named Bill. Yes, yes. Continues to look around in panic. Door. He said sky first, and then she's like, that's not a name. And then he said, door? That could be a name. Yeah. God. It just, it felt like me having to name any NPC ever. And then then she lists out first names, and he's like, yes. And she's like, which one? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's really interesting how death, like, sort of still has his powers, but also sort of doesn't. Yeah, and it sounds like his major thing is just he's still got all the perks of being deaf, except with not not having to do the reaping. Yeah, yeah. We get a little bit of like I, I would say like that industrialism and capitalism are both dehumanizing entities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um... especially uncontrolled. Yeah, uh, I felt like there was a kind of sideways anti-war thing going on as well, that the the combination harvester, the way that it was talked about really felt like it was kind of like a weapon of mass destruction or something like that. You know, the, the thing that would uncaringly wipe out thousands of lives, although albeit lives of plants, with a single swoop. That's interesting combined with the new deaths, his concept of there being lesser lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Where, like, he says that, you know, the life of the former death would be worth, like, 5,000 lesser lives or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which differentiates him from, from our death, who very clearly believes that even though he shows up for a king's death, every death Every, like, every death is small d. God, this is confusing. Um, Even though death shows up for a king's demise, uh, every thing is weighted equally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of... Yeah, it's... I like that that version of death is... That concept of... God. Like, medieval renaissance concept of, like, 
death comes for everyone, but like almost as like an equalizing force, like as an equalizing force kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's almost like a compassion in it once you have our death as the instrument. Mm-hmm. The there is no justice. There's just me. We're yeah. gonna talk about that line. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's really sort of like change versus balance sort of explorations in this and like what happens when things get thrown off kilter and you know do thing do things sort of come back to their old normal or to a new normal which feels pertinent um as i i think that that's interesting because i feel like terry wasn't like anti-change or anti-progress but you could definitely get that impression mm-hmm. from some of these books that, you know, the combination harvester, which is, you know, the symbol of the Industrial Revolution, um, the moving pictures, which would be, um, you know, cinema and innovation there, um, and the, <laughs> the shopping mall are all kind of viewed they either kind of crumble away or are viewed negatively. But that's that's something that does kind of change. I think it's it's an interesting thread throughout, though, that I don't think that he was necessarily, like, anti-change and, and invested in things staying the same. But I think he maybe was not thrilled with the idea of unthinking change i think it's like the the um the unthinking unchecked the the lack of ethics when observing change is i i think something i I, i'm pretty sure that terry pratchett would want to burn silicon valley down yeah maybe he was also very online in the early days yeah, but I, I mean, it's, it's pretty much every app on, like, every app we see that, like, of, like, TikTok is secretly a way for for the Chinese government to spy on people is basically, it feels like the inevitable conclusion of a Terry Pratchett plot. I mean, yeah. Elon, Elon Musk definitely feels like um, a character that, Terry has written as an antagonist. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I think, I feel like this also gets back to like what the internet felt like when I was, you know, in my teens slash early twenties versus how it feels now. And with the kind of rise of social media taking over everything, it's, it's become, much more the shopping mall and a lot less the quaint street full of charming shops. Mm-hmm. Or the clacks. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> I think Sorry. the... Okay, going- I know what the clacks are because there's a board game. Ah, uh, okay. I think going back to the combination harvester, though, like, it is a symbol of quote-unquote progress, but I think it's also... It's mostly there in the narrative to be a symbol of, like, callousness and, like, dehumanization. Where, like, people become numbers and you forget, like, 
the fullness of them. Yeah. And I think that it actually meshes very well with the shopping mall metaphor where that's just basically the commodification of people and, like, homogenization. They end up being, like, pretty good metaphor. Like, I don't know. They rhyme well with each other. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, for me, the theme is less about change than it is it is about like that it's always worth you know seeing seeing the world in a raindrop seeing the beauty of like little things and it's always worth caring and extending compassion even if you're only going to see people once it makes a difference to them yeah and um i just felt like it was interesting having this book coming right on the heels of moving pictures. Hmm. It's a very, it's a very Terry Pratchett way. Like this, again, this is a very Terry Pratchett worldview book for me where it's like, yeah, there's all these cosmic forces, but it, the thing it comes down to in the end is just caring about each other Mm -hmm. and about what's happening now. Oh, other themes. I, I really kind of, I really liked the idea of, like, the shopping mall and suburbia being, like, the natural predator of cities. Um, And I felt like that that really fits in well with the other bits of kind of genius loci we've seen in Terry Pratchett with, like, you know, like, the there's um, Lanker reaches out to the witches as kind of the land being alive. Um, there was a, some, some bits of that I felt like maybe with moving pictures as well. Uh, we've got this kind of idea that, you know, places are alive in their own way. Uh, in some ways, a little bit independent of exactly who's in them and uh, kind of extending the ecosystem from that idea it does make sense that there would be a predator. <laughs> and I guess as a shopping mall. God, you know this only becomes even more relevant as time goes by because now we have Amazon. Oh, God. God. Yeah. And like Walmart, it just it's it's Yeah, this this stuff still still feels relevant. <laughs> but also there's something about like Kind of being afraid that your time has come balanced with, like, the idea that the universe is going to keep on turning anyway. Change and things ending is tough, but it's, it's life will keep on going. I also liked the, we've got some of the Terry musings on the nature of belief. Mm-hmm. Mm. Including one of my favorite little ones of, it was really early on in the book, uh, it talked about the kind of strange dichotomy of the gods that either they exist only as a function of belief or they're there whether you believe in them or not, which I thought was kind of an interesting tangent to go along with. It's sort of the the chicken and the egg sort of thing. Yeah. Then there's that whole chunk in the middle of the book uh, that's like seven or eight paragraphs of, of death where they talk about how, you know, 
uh, belief creates other things. It created death, capital D, not death, small d, which is merely a technical term for a state caused by prolonged absence of life, but death, the personality. Uh, he was death long before humans ever considered him. They only added the shape and all the scythe and robe business to a personality that was always already millions of years old. And you know, now that he's gone, we have the new death of mayflies, which is a, you know, a fish. The private deaths of every species, no longer united but specific. The death of humanity hadn't been finished yet. Humans can believe some very complex things. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then earlier that, like, um, people get exactly the wrong idea about belief. They think it works back to front. They think the sequence is first object, then belief. In fact, it works the other way. Belief sloshes around in the firmament like lumps of clay spiraling into a potter's wheel. That's how gods get created, for example. They clearly must be created by their own believers, because a brief resume of the lives of most gods suggests that their origins certainly couldn't be divine. <laughs> uh, they tend to do exactly the things people would do if only they could, especially when it comes to nymphs, golden showers, and the smiting of your enemies. Don't know what kind of golden shower God. that is. God damn it, Terry. Uh, Terry, that was a look into your fetish life that I would prefer not to have. Oh, sorry. God damn I it, Terry. I for a second. What fucking bit was this? You are probably better off for it. I need to know. Unfortunately, there was there was a there was something about golden showers in there. Oh, so he's referencing Denai, uh, and everyone's taking it wrong. Okay. Referencing <laughs> what? Zeus came on Denai in a golden shower, and uh, then oh. Somebody was born. The one who got locked in a chest and floated out to sea. I don't remember which ES it was. Perseus? <laughs> and then we're just all being... We're just all being crude. <laughs> it's all sexual. <laughs> Perseus, I was correct. Also, your spit impression of why. Does it... Does it terrify you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have fun editing this one, Aaron. I mean, I always do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I did not know I had that voice in my pocket, so I'm looking forward to bringing that out again. Button, button, who's got the button? I have one. Well, right out of the damn gate on this book, uh, it's on a build door scene. Endless days going by fast. Didn't make sense. Oh boy, is that a mood. Yeah, that hurt. <laughs> oh boy. There's a very poignant quote uh, from Death when he is speaking with Asriel that I really liked. Um, All things that are, are ours, but we must care. For if we do not care, we do not mm-hmm. exist. If we do not exist, there is nothing but blind oblivion. Mm-hmm. And... That that is that is referring to the duties of death originally, but I think it is also just it's a very good it's something that just like very much uh, resounded with me. Mm-hmm. That whole soliloquy is so good. Yeah, same. I mean, I grabbed one from there as well. I started at, there is no hope but us, there is no mercy but us, there is no justice, there is just us. And Mm -hmm. I love, okay, I love this so much as symbolizing, like, death's, like, character growth since Mort. Because, like, 
I think towards the end of Mort, like, during the final confrontation of Mort, like, Mort is like, there really is no justice, there's just us, or something like that. Like, something where it's, like, used to condemn death as, like, not caring. And here, like, death is like, no, the point is that you do care, because there's only us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The abstract concepts. Mort turned that exact phrase against death. Yeah, and then death confrontation back and, like, has learned the lesson that he really needed to like see eye to eye with Mort. And it's so poignant to me. I, yeah, this is sort of an aside lightening this discussion just a teensy bit, but I, I just love the fact that uh, one of the auditors accuses death of morticide. <laughs> <laughs> and living <sighs> with intent to survive. Um, but yeah, you know, just like a couple sentences later, I just loved the, uh, um, Lord, what can the harvest hope for if not for the care of the Reaper Man? Uh, yeah, uh, I all yeah. those lines. Because that's what he learns. He- you know what? I didn't understand the sake of prisoners and flight of birds reference that kept popping back up. Was that a reference to something else? I think it's that if you're alone, you care about the little lives to give your life okay. meaning. And that's what he's gotcha. learning. I think he he's him as death is the prisoner. The birds are humans. Hmm. Okay. I think it's like that you take meaning where you can. Yeah. And like that that act of taking meaning where you can is what makes people people. Mm-hmm. Most of the universe is made up of dark matter and only Azrael knows who it is. The Azrael... Azrael is so interesting because we haven't seen anything like him before. Yeah. The cosmology is sort of like, wait, what? Yeah. I feel like, I feel like it's like a sudden smash cut with Sandman. Mm-hmm. I just love when Discworld gets weird and, and dives into cosmology stuff. I'm real into it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There were points in this where I was like, this, this is like, a little bit of Madeline Longland novel, just in bits. Anyway, um, also, the the way that the book, the story was bookended by uh, this the the Morris dances, uh, and the mm-hmm. the second, you know, the last dance is you know, it's not. They wear different outfits and they have octiron bells, which as I think has been established, clang with silence. And yeah. they they say you've got to dance both, referring to both the 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 dance of life and the dance of death. Otherwise, you can't dance either. Death is part of life. Mm-hmm. It's not separate from life. You can't have life without it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. This you know, for a very plot heavy book, there's a lot of Terry philosophy in this. I think. This is one of the books where the philosophy is just so well integrated. Mm-hmm. It's part of the plot, yeah. And it's driving like the emotions of the book too. Mm-hmm. I think that's I mean, we all walked away from this book being like, this was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, death books are good books usually. That really this expanded on the death lore and really expanded on death as the character, the Discworld death. And this really just gives him a big old infusion of, I don't want to say humanity because there's more than just humans on Discworld, but that's the only word that I can think of right now. Compassion? 
Yeah, a, a big dose of mortality. Yeah, yeah. Death gets really infused with a big dose dose of of mortality and continues to develop as a character. Um, I also really enjoyed the um, ongoing slide of the wizards from from very serious to you know a crispy crust of serious on top of a big victorious sponge of silly. And yes, I've been watching too much Great British Baking Show. I was gonna say, <laughs> I don't remember which one of Victoria Sponges. I felt like it bounced really well between its two narratives. I mean, it's, in some ways, plot lines wise, it's wise, it's simpler than some of the ones that we've had recently. Like, moving pictures had how many plot lines going on? A number. A, a large number. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, the, the kind of steady bouncing back between two solid uh, subplots, I think, worked really well. I think also, at this point, Terry has honestly leveled up in writing, like, that he's a much better writer by the time we've hit this than he was yeah. even back at Mort, which had, you know, was a very good book, but had some pacing issues here and there, and just wasn't quite as solidly constructed as this. Who knew that when you write ten novels, each one improves upon the last, and skills increase? Well, this one is really, for a Terry Pratchett book, just very structured. Like, it doesn't have the, like, imposed structure of, like, chapters, but... I mean, again, there's the frame, there's the framings of the Morris stances, there's... I don't know, I just feel like there's a lot of, like, everything playing into, like, each plotline playing into the other one, like, thematically, and just very good. Just very well put together. Also, always here for supernatural entities that are discovering feeling things for the first time, and just, like, the hopeless determination of death in this one... The race against the combination harvester is honestly weirdly one of my favorite bits in that it's just so much about this like desperation that death is feeling this I don't want to go I don't want to be made redundant I it's very good like just fighting against the inevitable and not being able to win but coming so close it was also like a John Henry versus the steam hammer nod right oh for sure yes but, like, where it also yeah, was, absolutely. like, about death being, like, I don't want to stop being alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because, like, throughout the entire thing, it, it sort of established that he goes through and cuts each stock individually. Mm-hmm. And still manages to be very fast. I really like the comparison to John Ham- John Henry and the Steam Hammer. Mm-hmm. That's very good. I was trying to remember what American folktale it was reminding me of. Thank you for bringing yeah. it up. Because I was, I was trying to dig that out of my brain all day. Also, things I like. The fact that so much of this book is about finding genuine, lovely connections. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> we've got that yeah, with Dad. We've also got it with Wendell Poons. He makes a lot of really cool friends. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And helps a werewolf and a wolf wear. Yeah. But also, like, just that he, I don't know, it seems like he's, like, genuinely, like, friends with everyone in his little, like, undead club, and, I don't know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very good. We don't leave anyone behind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like even the the senior wizards sort of... Yeah. They're not fighting each other. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're not trying to stab each other in the back to get into the eighth level. Which is honestly a much better look for them. Yeah. Oh, there's that long there's that long footnote about about the real purpose of magic too. Which is like not necessarily to do magic, but to sort of build a societal structure in which they are at the top and less wizardy people are not at the top. The senior wizards know that the proper purpose of magic is to form a social pyramid with the wizards on top of it, eating big dinners. But in fact, the HEM building has helped provide one of the rarest foods in the universe, antipasta. Ordinary pasta is created some hours after the meal, whereupon it then exists backward in time, and if properly prepared, should arrive on the taste buds at exactly the same moment, thus creating a true taste explosion. It costs $5,000 a forkful, or a little more if you include the cost of cleaning the tomato sauce off the walls afterwards. Why am I pronouncing that British ways? Whatever. Oh, God, it's reannual wine. Yeah. Now we have yeah. to make reannual jokes, Aaron. Crap. Okay. Um, we'll put it at the start of the episode. I'll figure it out. An anti-joke. Yeah, the anti-crime. Uh, anti-crime too. is so good. <laughs> Merely giving something is not the opposite of robbery. To be an anti-crime, it has to be done in such a way as to cause outrage and or humiliation to the victim. <laughs> So there's breaking, <laughs> breaking and decorating, preferring with embarrassment, and white mailing. So leverage, right? Anti-crimes have never really caught on. What uh, do you call a humorous anecdote about Amati- about Amatidia? What? Oh, you! I said an anti-joke earlier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ants have compound eyes with many units called Amatidia. Oh, I thought you were making a Montiato joke. No, no. I said an anti-joke earlier, and I was trying to find the setup for that punchline, and it took me a while. Uh, uh Less than five minutes. Let's go on, like, the whole thing about relationships, and, like, people actually have good relationships in this book, and, like, the, the Bill Dorr and Mrs. Flitworth... Just like their their relationship, where it originally starts with this like almost mandatorily standoffish. Well, I will have to. Well, I will have to hire you, but you cannot be in the house, and um, and then developing it there into something delightfully earnest and kind. And yeah, no, we're gonna go back on this. Like, uh, oh, we're going back. Death, there. death going like. Learning, like, Death knows that she doesn't have all the time. So, you know, treats her to a fantastic evening, pampers her, um, takes her to a dance. You know, he, he says, you know, I, I can take you anywhere in the world. She's like, well, it's, it's, the, it's the dance. And so we're going to the dance. And they just have a really fantastic evening. And Death does his best to make it as good as possible. And then he tries so it's, hard. It's so good that Miss Flipworth hasn't even realized she's passed. Which I feel like I've read that trope somewhere before, like or like that same thing before, where it's like somebody hasn't realized they've died in the middle of something. Well, that's that's a ghost story trope. It's a ghost story trope to like walk yeah. around your day not realizing you're dead. Yeah, I'm just trying to realize where it's like it was something very similar to this specific thing. 
I bet Elspace Wiki has. But I really like, and then and then Death of course does the the best thing that Death could do, and reunites her with her long lost love. And I'm just like, oh, oh gosh, yes. And also shows that he did in fact die in an avalanche and not just run off with another woman. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and then I so bet good. Death knew that the whole time because he remembers everyone. Mm-hmm. Like he remembered, he very clearly remembered Miss Flitworth's dad. There's a lot to like. Any specifics that we want to highlight? God, I love that we just wrote paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I loved the support group for the undeads and other supernatural entities. Oh, it's it's such a nice, strange little found family that Wendell stumbles upon. Um, there's like the setup between Ludmilla and the reverse werewolf. Um, it, it was, it was just such a lovely little group of people who were all supporting each other. I, I liked the very, you know, human takes on all of them, you know, that they were all kind of oddballs who had found each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel like Terry really upped his pun game for this particular book, uh, that, um, you know, it, it start the, the, the title is a pun, a pun, a pun, that it is a, and this is word of God, apparently, uh, it is a parody or a pun on Repo Man. Which is, in turn, a pun on the phrase Reaper Man. Uh, This book also gives us some really good gems, such as hemogoblins and dichotomy. Oh, I don't think surgery is involved. Oh, the puns are just so good. I I also really loved the Dean, partly because who among us has not either been the dean constantly shouting yo or the friends exasperated by the dean constantly shouting yo i feel like i've been both of those I've been people both of those people for sure it was very relatable uh, the, the fact and the bit at the end where they're like okay everyone can have one yo just arch chancellor <laughs> red cully being the most done dad <laughs> dean can have one yo as a treat. <laughs> Mary twas a sharp retort, and then the yes. poor fool having to explain like he he can't help himself. He has to say it. And then he has to explain mm-hmm. it. And I'm just like, this is so relatable and also I very much enjoyed that pun. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And also Chekhov's wow wow sauce. I love every time like Every time Cherry Project goes off on a weird joke tangent and then later on it becomes very plot critical, I'm like, yes! I love that shit. Um, if anybody doesn't remember, Wow Wow Sauce was set up as like this horrible, horrible condiment that Ridcully, that's like a special recipe from home that's in Ridcully's family. Mm-hmm. It involves sulfur and saltpeter along with a lot of other things uh, for flavor. 
Um, and his grandfather died after eating a lot of wow wow sauce and a charcoal bicky and then lighting a pipe. Uh, and all we know right. is that he disappeared and his shoe was found like three miles away or something like that. And then later on, like, there's the manure pile that's going around and like, they're like, there's a lot of carbon. And Red Clay is like, carbon, that's like charcoal, right? And then he looks at the wow wow sauce bottle and then he's like, well, and that's how they explode the manure pile. Uh, yeah. Like, you just you just have to remember the dumb joke that Terry Pratchett told earlier to understand what's happening there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The dumb joke in a footnote, too, I think. Right? <laughs> there was one sec that I loved where the, um, where he sort of inserts meta commentary on himself, uh, where there's things unscrewing themselves and you know the the full poltergeist activity and and terry's commentary on this was inexplicable phenomena were not in themselves unusual on the disc world it was just that they normally had more point or at least were a bit more interesting (laughs) yeah yeah at some point i almost said in the summary they're getting things are getting weird in ankmore park well weirder than usual anyway (laughs) yeah yeah, and then, then you know, the speaking of compost, uh, the dean and Red Cully talking about the compost heaps felt very. Um, it was hilarious because the dean says all it's doing is moving around slowly, eating things, and Red Cully replies, "Put a hat on it and be a faculty member." <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. The wizards were, and. Look at how far we've come from all of the books where we're like, wizards bad. <laughs> well, it's because all the competent ones died. just had to died. throw them into a slapstick. But also, I will note that I think this is the version of wizards I knew before we started this journey. So, like, there was a point where mm. I was, like, watching one of the miniseries adaptations. Maybe Color of Magic. I started it and then I was like, why are the wizards all, like, cutthroat and shit? <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, this can't be from yeah. the book. It is from the book. It's just from an earlier version of the book that I didn't know about. <laughs> yeah, the, the wizards are at this point, like, honestly, a lot of fun. Yeah, they've definitely come a long way. Hopefully this makes you more optimistic about future wizards books, Justin. It, it does. If, if, if they hold true to this and it's just shenanigans, I'm much more into that. Yeah, I'm now excited for Unseen Academicals. <sighs> Well, except that's going to hurt your heart a little bit, but in a good way. Good, then. So what do we think has stood up well to the test of time? I think this book in general has gone pretty well. Um, the Specifically, how the enemies of this book are thoughtless bureaucracies and the faces and tools of such things. Like, everything happens because of the auditors deciding that... You can't have a death who cares, which is very much the the train of thought of, well, you have to appro- you, you have to approach all things logically and without emotion, which is a very oh, we call it I'd call it problematic way of viewing at things. Yeah, I felt like the whole thing felt honestly very relevant to where we are now in July of 2020 in the middle of a pandemic where a lot of mortality both within the US and globally has sort of has been just reduced to statistics. You know, actually, you know, hit me relatively hard at a few points. The 
you know, the death versus the combination harvester wizards and such fighting against, like, the literally faceless, because it's a eldritch abomination face of, you know, uh, consumerism. Felt very relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I would, yeah, it's a shopping mall for sure. Feels super. And it's funny because I think, I think the word of God was that Terry ended up not very happy with the whole shopping mall thing that he felt like it was kind of a bit obvious or on the nose or I mean, like it is not particularly clever, but but it works. I feel like it works actually potentially even better now. Yeah, than it God. did when this was written. Like, yeah, because it's it's not a new thing, but we've seen how these kinds of things have, like, literally there's always, like, you know, shop local initiatives and things like that because, like, big box stores and Amazon are crowding out, like, all these smaller businesses. And I could definitely see how in 1991 it would have been potentially viewed as sort of maybe scaremongering or something like that of like, oh, well, you know, the the malls won't be the death of civilization. Yeah, this was like pre-Amazon even being a bookseller. (laughs) Right. Uh, Whereas now in 2020, like, I think this is far more relevant than Terry ever envisioned. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Good job, buddy. Yeah, there was one... In addition to what, what y'all just said, there's one little bit that stuck out to me early on in the book when Wendell was newly mobile again and walked uh, unconcerned through the shades and notes that trolls were moving through the crowds like big people moving among little people as opposed to the way that they do in the rest of Ankhmore Park, which is sort of a shamble uh, and very cautiously trying not to club anybody in the head. Which I thought was, you know, and then later on, several people of various shapes and species jostled him. I think it's trying to move a move towards this cosmopolitan view of of Ankh-Mor Park as opposed to the the more traditional sword and sandal fantasy of like race tropes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like we're we're starting to get to the point where the trolls are like people as opposed to like the first time we encountered trolls in this series where i was like is this even the same species as the ones that i know from later on (laughs) Mm -hmm. right i i did like also that it was it was a line by windle of i'm afraid wizards don't often listen i never listened for 130 years um mrs cake replies why not the reply is, in case I heard what rubbish I was saying, I expect. Which I thought was, that was just a good line. I think a, a nice little jab at academia. <laughs> but anyway, uh, things that haven't aged well. So, Mrs. Cake is a medium. And her, as is traditional in the, like, Houdini era, uh medium traditions has a spirit guide who is very clearly a riff off of the native American spirit guide, uh, which was a common trope among spiritualists in like the 1900s 
and he makes fun of it pretty much, but also dives and also kind of falls into the tropes around Native Americans, which is not super good. He didn't yeah. have to take it the way that he took it because we no. he dangles the what does one man bucket joke the whole time and then it's the t- trots out this really mm-hmm. horrible tired. Has he made the joke about the looking out the teepee to name someone thing before? Because I feel like I recognize that joke. I don't joke. think so. I don't think Why so. Why have I heard so. that joke somewhere else recently then? I'm so mad I about don't it. <laughs> Why have I heard this yeah. joke twice in 2020? It's it's played for laughs, but it's just like... Uh. It's not a thing that I want to laugh at. No, and yeah. also the repeated implication that One Man Bucket is an alcoholic. Oh, God, I didn't even notice that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, mm. I think it... I think it fits into some of the same territory that pyramids as a whole fit into mm-hmm. of you can't just um, shade it. You know, the, the kind of not quite being self-aware enough to fully satirize something rather than just parodying it. There was also at some point an off color reference to voodoo kettle drums and in air quotes, bimbo dancing, uh, I highlighted that on my Kindle and annotated it with just the word yikes. Also, the fact that somebody in the Discworld made commentary on voodoo uh, gods when that is a living religion. Yeah. Do I gotta talk about this? Uh, Do I gotta talk about my thing? Yeah. So so there's a joke here about the, the, the war cry of Bonsai, which... For, for folks who don't know, is, translates to 10,000 years as in May the Emperor lived 10,000 years. Um, and it's a joke of, haha, I've heard of, about a funny, uh, like this culture uses bonsai, which is the art of cutting a small tree, um, as the historical war cry of bonsai. And, you know, imperialist war cries are a bad enough joke, but. Uh, I'm drinking water tonight, folks. I'm not. I, it, I'm drinking water, not alcohol, and it makes me wish that this clear liquid was something else. Uh, and and with that whole battle cry, Terry was so close because he, there's this line of like that said by the wizards of we've got a totally different cultural background. It'd be useless. No one would know what you mean. And it's like, ah. Uh, you were so close. Just internalize that, please. I also, there was that joke about the bogeyman coming out of the closet that I also felt was off color and played for laughs. You know, Schleppel the bogeyman rips the door off of a closet and there's a comment that he's he's come out of the closet and found himself or something along those lines. It's like, really? Didn't feel great about that one. For me, a joke that I didn't feel super great about was, um, I think Reg Shu starts singing We Shall Overcome, and there's a footnote, like, a song which in various languages is common on every known world in the multiverse. It's always sung by the same people, these, the people who, when they grow up, will be the people the next generation sing We Shall Overcome at, which is kind of like this ongoing thing that I don't 
like in Terry's social progress stuff, where it's, like, kind of laughing at, like, organization and protest. Um, especially because I learned about We Shall Overcome in the context of, like, the U.S. civil rights movement, which is not something that I would characterize that way, and uh, it's not... It's kind of a lazy joke that I don't like very much. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a jab about perhaps how, you know, the hippies became boomers. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think it loses a lot of Yeah, it wasn't, that, it wasn't well thought he, out. He frequently does that with protest culture, and I don't like that very much. Yeah, especially I think that he has a very narrow context on protest culture and i think it's another one of the things that he really didn't think a lot about before incorporating it yeah but he just he incorporates it so much in so many of his works (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right so that kind of covers that section and the next section, I think. Yeah, uh, under, is there anything you wish had been done differently? I said, literally just get rid of all the racist jokes and I could give this a solid 10 out of 10. Terry, please. Discworld references. Uh, I want to hear what the newer folks... So do we know how much time has passed between this and Mort? In, like, real world time? Or, or Discworld time? Because, like, we get, like, some very vague references that, like, he's lost touch with Isabel. Oh, Justin. Oh, Justin. <laughs> Oh no, this is gonna hurt when I read this in a later book. I'm worried now. It's it's complicated. I thought they were supposed to come back. You don't have to wait too much longer. You don't have to wait too much longer. Also, the question of how much time has passed is a really interesting one that a lot of people on the L space have tried to figure out over the course of many, many, many forum posts, and nobody has fucking figured it out. Nobody knows. Uh, I'm going to go hide under there my was desk the wizard. There, there was a thing where, like, the wiz- witches, like, did a time skip, and, like, people are, like, trying to judge the timeline based off of the age of the particular patrician's dog and like (laughs) there's some real weird fuzzy shit in there i'm I'm taking my mic i'm hiding under the desk i don't think you can take a lot so we can view i don't think you can actually make this i don't think you can stitch this together (laughs) oh but people have tried Uh, (laughs) archival fandom is so frustrating the books are roughly chronological in universe Emphasis on the roughly. Very roughly. Okay. Because, like, God knows when the start of Witches, uh, of uh, Weird Sisters was. Oh, right. Right. And relative to equal rights and, like, question marks. But, yes, you bring up a very interesting question, Justin, and one that will be addressed in future novels. Oh, Please stay tuned. Oh, I thought yeah. you were going to say we were going to address chronology in the Discworld, and I was like, please, can I Oh, God, not? no. <laughs> <laughs> no. The, the, the farthest I'm willing to go for Discworld chronology is that the books were written in roughly chronological yeah. order. The way I for feel some about definition of roughly. to actually untangle it is how I feel about reading, like, annotated Sherlock Holmes, where, like, somebody's trying to, from a Watsonian perspective, figure out where the fuck Loriston Gardens was when it was clearly a made-up place. Where it's like, clear, I, <sighs> yeah. I, I respect that people do that for fun, and that is something they care about. It's not something that I care about unless I need it for a fanfic. 
references for me. Obviously, there's no justice, just us. Loved that shit. Uh, just in general, this book was a really fun companion to Mort, like, character-wise and thematically. Also, towards the end, when Death is kind of moping about Miss Flitworth a little bit, he reads the lives of famous lovers. Didn't Isabel read a lot of, like, yes. that kind of shit? Oh, yeah. He's totally reading Isabel's yep. books to feel better about falling in love, right? That's what's happening. This isn't the first appearance of Casananda, is it? I think it is, because I don't remember that joke. I think it is. Okay. Casananda instead of Casanova. The the greatest lover on the Discworld who also needed a a stepladder. But yeah, like when he's reading these like ridiculous, overwrought, but also formulaic stories about lovers, I'm like, that sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure those are his daughter's books. Mm -hmm. Aaron, side note. Do I remember correctly who Casananda meets maybe the the character we've already seen who he meets you maybe who meets him oh shit you're right yeah okay yeah yeah oh god <laughs> oh god it's gonna be so good <laughs> yep yep justin and minna are gonna die yeah they are oh, in a good way or in a i feel i yeah in a good way in a good way um, i'm pretty sure is it will I'm, I'm not going to say nothing. That. Yeah, it will spoil it. Um, I loved that Arch Chancellor Ridcully, uh, his brother, is the chief priest. Yes. Ridcully. Oh, that was so that good. That was so good. Yeah. That they're like, yeah, we will present a unified front for the good, of, the good of the city. Oh, yeah. By the way, mom expects you for dinner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I loved the, the, the first, you know, we've talked about this earlier in the show, but, um, the, uh, the the first appearance of Death's major antagonist, Bureaucracy. Mrs. Cake, uh, I th- is this the first Werewolves and Vampires? I feel like it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Red, red shoe, crying emoji. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people and references in this. Is this. This sets the stage for a lot of stuff. But this mm-hmm. is like, this is not necessarily werewolves, vampires, or even Reg Shu as we'll later come to know them, which is kind of an ongoing thing with Cherry where like things that he introduces take on different shapes yeah. as they get settled in. No, that's that's totally true. Uh, and, and sort of side note, I definitely got a, a um, uh, what we do in the shadows feel from um, Arthur. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah bat? Sure. <laughs> bat! Bat! <laughs> oh my god, I love the Transformations. <laughs> he he's got to get a run up. up you know, he's not high enough, so he just jumps out of windows. Yeah. Oh god. And they've got to throw him. Yes. Yeah. Yeet the bats. <laughs> Yeet your husband. Oh, and also, I think maybe the first reference to Treacle Mine Road. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that sounds I right. I saw that and I was like, Treacle Mine Road. Oh, I I loved how much payoff we saw from the character development that we've already seen for death. Like that that, uh, we kicked off a lot of that with Mort and it's been sort of, I think, rolling in the background as death has witnessed the events of the other books between Mort and now. And we've got this transformation from death as someone who's sort of abstractly fascinated by humanity um, and who's trying to 
get this like veneer surface level emulation of humanity. And by the time we've hit Reaper Man, he's not just trying to like emulate the facade. He's trying to really understand not just what humans do, but why they do it and what it really means to be human. And it's just a really good plot thread and payoff. I don't even know that he's trying to, but that he, like, he's almost forced to by the condition of being a being that will die and that has time. Like, like, literally just the change perspective changes how that reads to him. Also, I just thought of a reference that I forgot about. We'll come back to that. I like that Terry redid a good bit from a bad book. <laughs> um, so there's there's that bit with the chief priest doing doing that like newscaster announcer reel with the mm-hmm. with the affairs of the gods. It was really reminiscent to that sports announcer bit in Pyramids, which is a really fun bit in a flawed book. And seeing that kind of done again in a book that's actually good was a lot of fun to me. (laughs) You want to know how I read that one, though? I definitely didn't read it as a news announcer. I definitely read it as the, the, like, cover of a Soap Digest magazine. (laughs) Yeah, it felt very soapy to me as well. I I think it still is the same, like, broad bit, though. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. I'm just saying that I very much enjoyed that it felt like a soap opera thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a reinterpretation, but it was it was a lot of fun for me. Mm-hmm. Also, this is this is borrowing from the future a bit. Uh, there's this mention on page 37 of my book that Ridcully wanted the university to form its own football <laughs> team, and oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, it's a whole book. And there's a mention to the so-called Maurice and his educated rodents. In caps. Who get an entire yep. book of their own. Yep. Apparently. Yes, I, I, I thought I recognized that name. Apparently his first kid's book in the Discworld series. Mm-hmm. It's still a lot of fun, though. It's a very good book. Aaron, is one of your daughters going to join us for that recording? Yeah, probably. Excellent. Oh, no, we can't have a kid while, while I'm recording. This is fuck too much. <laughs> or we'll record her on uh, a side bit or something. That 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 might be better. Yeah. Just saying. Yep. Yeah. Death, learning games, and he doesn't remember the right, or they they don't have the names they have in the real world, but you know exactly what they are. That happens Mm. like multiple times in this. Pool is pond. Uh, Mm -hmm. Monopoly is like exclusive possessions. Exclusive possessions. Okay. Yeah. Just. Yeah. Chef kiss. Love it. This is a throwback. Like we're. We're. Thank you. We're. I was like, Bridge? Yes. What did they call Bridge? <laughs> but then he just picks up these games. They have the wrong name. Whatever. I'm cheating now, but I was trolling through the, the L-Space uh, annotations. And apparently there is a 1985 movie called Lady Hawk, where they explore the idea of two were creatures whose animal and human phases are out of sync. I've heard of that. I love that. I didn't know that's what it was. The name is familiar. Starring Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. Oh. Wow. That sounds like something this guy needs to watch, frankly. I I'm I'm that sounds like a that sounds good. I'm um 
It looks like it's a... Okay, I'm just reading this because... Uh, Upon breaking out of a dungeon, youthful feet Philippe Gaston, Matthew Broderick, befriends Captain Navarre, Captain uh, Rutger Hauer, a man with a strange secret. Navarre is... Oh! Oh! They're... they're, they're, they're oh, gosh. Yes. Okay, they're... they're uh, Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer hook up. They, or they have hooked up. Oh, and, oh, yeah, so, and Matthew Broderick. So I, I've definitely seen references to this that I didn't actually get back when I was like in the Dragon Age fandom approximately one million years ago. Because the, the protagonist for Dragon Age 3 is Hawk. Um, and there and, were some jokes. And yeah. Okay, there's just this picture of like Rucker Hauer on a fucking like black horse with a sword <laughs> and he has and he's like he's do he's got like a falcon on his arm and I'm like Damn, that's majestic. That's gotta be fuck. Michelle Pfeiffer, right? The Falcon is totally Michelle Pfeiffer. Right? Oh, it has to be. God. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the gang constructs the plot of Lady Hawk from a quick Google search and what we would like <laughs> it to be. That's, that's, well, let's do this. Uh, <laughs> just looking at the Google image search for Lady Hawk, this is the, we're gonna make this. Uh, bonus what else here. is important to talk about? Lady Hawk and nothing else. <laughs> I do have some stuff that is important to talk about. So because, do I. Um, yeah, go ahead, Justin. So first of all, first of all, I I feel like this is a better evolution of the dimensional invasion plot that Terry has tried half a dozen times before. <laughs> um, because it actually like progresses and pays off instead of being a thing that's rushed in at the third act. Yeah. Um, but on other things, um, first, 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 as somebody who grew up reading Bunicula, <laughs> the fact that they try to kill, the fact oh, that they try celery. to kill the in the ground yeah. with a stake, that is my favorite bad, like, homophonic joke. Yes. Uh, oh, God, Bunicula is so good. Uh, about those God, books can we do a particular podcast grade. after this? Yeah, definitely. Also, two two additional things that are like just joke things that need to be put out there. The fact that the right of right of Ashkent basically brings an answering machine response. Of, uh, we're sorry, death is out. A new one will be selected shortly. <laughs> Please leave a message after the beep. I was gonna say the and lastly, death you are trying lastly, to get to has been disconnected. Because we, because I was like, oh, we'll get to that later, and then I realized, oh, we're getting to the end of the podcast. The death of rats. Yes. Oh yeah. You the have a new boy. Rats. He's so cute. This little, this little, little, little murder rat. This is tiny little scythe. He tries no, you a few can't things, ride a cat. He's just a rat version of our death. And the fact that we... I know, I love him so much. We leave him and Death, like, debating what he should ride, which is very cute. There's also the death of fleas, right? Yes, the death of fleas Gosh. and the death of rats escaped. Yeah. Death of rats is so good. He's so cute. So I have, I have a few things that I need to talk about. <laughs> the first being the wizards have Adam theory. Right? Because fairly early on, the wizards discuss how every atom in your body is changed every seven years. 
this means that the wizards have Adam theory. And I think that we all need to sit with this knowledge for a moment. Mm-hmm. This is, wait, 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 wait. Does this mean if atoms exist in the Discworld that Ritzwin could theoretically become a nuclear physicist in his actual universe? Well, so yes. there's an exceedingly nerdy deep cut joke in in that footnote that we previously referenced about magic. Um, because the high energy magic building is built in the squash court. Uh, Enrico Fermi's first nuclear reactor was built under a squash court. Which is I need Rince so Wind nerdy. to be involved in high energy magic immediately. Oh no, he has a much greater sense of self-preservation than that. <laughs> I just need nuclear physicist Rincewind. It was my favorite life for him. I want it for him. He deserves it. Well, so this is a minor spoiler, but that's Ponder Stibbon's domain. Ponder comes back and he is a good, good boy. Yeah. I also would like to point out that the disc has frisbees, but this should surprise none of us. Because why wouldn't the disc have frisbees? Because... It is, in fact, a frisbee itself. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. we have ball. We play with balls a lot, so yeah, it makes sense. You play with the disc. It's just a frisbee. Insert joke here about playing with playing balls. Through. Mm. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Do, does this mean that Discworld has ultimate? I think that was the reference. Uh, let me. It was on. I have it bookmarked. Give me just one second to like wake up my Kindle and. I'm just going to give us some extra spit dialogue no. to pass the time while Anna looks up. Oh, the shoot. The other, the other minor dialogue. thing that I totally forgot to mention. Um, I, the wizard swears coming to life. Uh, you're oh, their good. daddy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Just, I just, the wizards are so endearing in this one. Yeah. Okay, okay, here it is on page 279. Okay, no, it's it's when they were, it's when they were discussing yeeting, yeeting the bat. On the ground, I don't want to be, but when it comes to being chucked around like a frisbee. So it is unclear whether or not Ultimate Frisbee exists in the context of the Discworld. Ultimate Frisbee feels like if it, it had a Discworld variant... It would involve, like, three miles of land and multiple homicides. Yeah, I was going to say, definitely there's, that, like, that's teeth just football. on the Frisbees and they decapitate people. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> Spoiler. Those were, those were the things that I needed to talk about. One last thing that I thought was very funny as a uh, higher ed nerd, um, the Unseen University pays a pilot, um, which is... A, an often debated thing that universities are sometimes pay and sometimes don't, which is a sense for payment in lieu of taxes, uh, where they contribute roughly what they would owe in property taxes because they are otherwise exempt uh, due to being nonprofits. Oh. Except that in this case, oh, right. In this case, it's it's uh, in a mutual agreement between uh, Ridcully and uh, Veterinary. That was so good. Um. It was just. My higher ed nerd brain. For me, a thing I want to discuss is these auditor things, even more so now that I know they come back, but these auditor things as like a cosmic entity that feel like actual cosmic beings in a way that like we haven't seen before. 
and I know I've kind of talked about this, I just think it's the fact that they're specifically, like, detached and completely devoid of, like, personality or interest in the world is such an interesting addition to kind of the way Terry portrays divinity, I guess? Or, like, controllers of the universe Mm -hmm. might be a better way to phrase it. Yeah, they're really interesting. Like, there's the things that just don't care at all and just want order are kind of almost Mm -hmm. at the, like, the highest level of control. And then there's all these supernatural intermediaries that are, like, varying degrees of kind of just humans. And then there's humans. Yeah, it's, I feel like it's, they're they're sort of, like, the anti-gods and, like, not in, like, gods versus demons, but in, like, matter versus antimatter. I don't even think they'd phrase them as anti-gods so much as I'd phrase them as, like, the gods' higher-ups. That also works. But the, the, the idea that they're, like, just interested in, like, order and structure and that, like living beings and their beliefs are just, like, chaotic noise. So are you going to talk about uh, relationships, or did we kind of touch on all of that already? Do well, we need I think our before own that, we still haven't talked about the last page, Aaron. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the sort of... Um, it's that sort of weird cosmology thing, you know... The the very last sentence of the book is, and at the end of all stories, Azrael, who knew the secret, thought, I remember when all this will be again. Which is a very weird place for Terry to end this. I yeah. don't think it is, though. Isn't, am I like misremembering? I'm just trying to dig out of my memory. Like, it feels like there's a thing where the well, universe death does, does start give... all over again after it ends. Death does give Mort and Isabel uh, a baby universe. That's not what I'm talking about. It was actually an Eric, right? The idea that at yeah. the, you get to the end and it just loops you right around to the beginning because the universe is cycling, basically. Yeah, is that you're right. No, that was that was a deep cut from Eric. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I thought I remembered that being there. Yeah, Discworld's cosmology starts over again. It it's it goes it's around and around circular. in the circle. <laughs> all of this has happened before. All of this will happen. Yeah, again. <laughs> and I think it's actually <laughs> as, as a bookend, <laughs> or not as a bookend, but as like an ending to this one. It almost places it in perspective. We're like, even if things mm. end, they are always going to come around again. You just don't know it. You just can't see it because you're too small. And that's the same way that it's like, you know, it probably one of those. Stalks of corn that death was cutting can't see a cornfield. Right. Yeah, Azrael in this, according to, again, to Elspace, is based on the uh, Islamic character. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Who, in the the angel of, the Islamic angel of death, supposedly the very last creature to die ever, uh, says, In the actual legend, Azrael is bound in chains thousands of miles long and possesses millions of eyes, one for every person that has ever lived or will ever lived. When a person dies, the eye in question closes forever, and when Azrael goes blind, it will be the end of the human race. Oh, I want to ask Amra about really that now. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because his Azrael is the death of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, oh, I really... Okay. I find it interesting that so much, so much about this book is about the question of scale, 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That everything yeah. everything that happens in it is, I don't know, like deaths, all the deaths that happen in it from corn up to like the universe is the same thing. Just a matter of you know if you can if you can see the the size of it, I guess, or if you can see the whole thing. It's an interesting thing that the death who we follow isn't the death of the universe because the universe doesn't die, it loops. Well, we we don't have proof that people don't loop because it's definitely one of the theories for what happens after death. Yeah, and the the thing that also sort of, this is going on way too long now and getting very deep, but it's interesting that the auditors work, I guess, sort of for Azrael, maybe, or are associated with Azrael in some way. Uh, and they're all about rules and then Azrael is able to break rules for Discworld's death. They didn't feel like they worked for Azrael to me. They felt like Azrael's wardens. Hmm. And I don't know how accurate that is, but it felt like Azrael was a prisoner and they were the ones who were maintaining both Azrael and everything else. Interesting. Yeah, they, they felt like they were more outside the power structure. Um, I think that that comes in with the name auditors as well, that mm-hmm. they're, mm-hmm. they're, I feel like in some ways the most alien thing we've seen. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Gray faceless shapes. Yeah. And I also mean alien as being like outside of everything that outside of humanity, not just that they look alien. Azrael's the death of the universe that the Discworld exists in, but that's not the only universe. We know there's a whole bunch of universes in this world, in this mm-hmm. in this setting. I think the auditors are, you know, from outside and between those universes. I think they're from I think they're even further from us than Azrael is. Mm-hmm. Going back to the Doctor Who references, uh, perhaps they're from the void. Oh shoot, yeah. So Thief of Time is I that next, that sounds very fun and I can't wait for it. I think that's the next major appearance of uh the auditors. Yeah. It's good. Okay. Uh yeah. moving on. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we had to talk about if we can't get fucking deep on the cosmology in a death book, when can we? Yeah. I just I just want to point on, out that I think my favorite thing about death and Miss Flitworth is that they're kind of just lonely people who meet each other and find exactly what they need, and it's really sweet. Yeah, yeah, uh, hi, this is Minna, and I didn't think Terry could write a good romance for death, and he did, and I think it's partly because it's so quiet and honestly kind of platonic at most points. Like, they're just really sweet, and they help each other see things differently, and they're both just lonely people who meet each other and find something they need, okay? It's really nice. It's very pastoral. Mm-hmm. It's not just that I didn't think somebody could write a death romance that I thought that would hook me in. It's that I didn't think Terry could write a death romance that would hook me in, but he really did. And I think it's that mm. when he just writes people being friends and then that turns into something is when I enjoy his romances. <laughs> oh, like Vimes and Sybil. Yes. All right, so Ratings. I give this book four out of five slightly too squiggly exclamation points. I'm not going to explain (laughs) that joke because um, you have to read the book. I would give it nine out of, ah, ah, crap. There should be, there should be ten re-stitched on fingers. And now I have to go find that last one. (sighs) Where did I leave it? 
Got to find an Igor. <laughs> We're not there yet. Shoot. Uh, Three point five out of four weeks in the month. I will rate it eight out of ten. Snow globe tchotchkes. I love you're trying to figure out how to spell tchotchkes. tchotchkes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I I couldn't. I didn't know how to spell it, so I just <laughs> jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Next book. Next book. Next book. Which is abroad. Which is abroad, which I pulled up. Um, Okay, this starts once upon a time, so I'm going to do a very... Once upon a time, there was a fairy godmother named Desiderata who had a good heart, a wise head, and poor planning skills, which unfortunately left the Princess Emberella in the care of her other, not quite so good and wise godmother when death came for Desiderata. Now it's up to Magret Garlic, Granny Weatherwax, and Nanny Og to hop on broomsticks and make for far distant Genua to ensure the servant girl doesn't marry the prince. But the road to Genua is bumpy, and along the way the trio witches encounter the occasional vampire, werewolf, and falling packs. Well, this is a fairy tale after all. The trouble really begins once those reluctant foster godmothers arrive in Genua and must outwit their power-hungry counterpart, who will stop at nothing to achieve a proper happy ending, even if it means destroying a kingdom. Oh, this looks like so much my bullshit. I feel like there's going to be some meta-narrative shit going on here. (laughs) So delighted. And this is another one that I remember almost nothing about, so this will be a lot of fun. I remembered that it had witches. Yeah. And that they went abroad. It sounds about right, considering the name of the book. It's going to be good. My brain keeps making Tom Sawyer references because of the Tom Sawyer abroad thing, and now I just want them to be in a hot air balloon at some point. (laughs) See, I heard Tom Sawyer, and my mind immediately jumped to Rush because I'm... Yes, that's exactly where my pet. I was raised well. on three Tom Sawyer books. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.